It's the 31st of May, 2019. This is a Room Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. ULAR's two weeks away. Get your tickets now. Room Now will be there covering the uh, meeting for you. So hope you'll enjoy that. Look for our uh, expanded coverage. Today, we're going to talk about disappointing drugs from the fibromyalgia world, the cost of physician burnout, and which is a safer drug, allopurinol or febuxostat? Or does it even matter when we're talking about gout? That's our first study. It comes from a Korean national health insurance database, which looked at prescriptions of febuxostat and first-time initiators of allopurinol in patients with gout. Almost 40,000 patients were studied um, over a several year period, and they were looking at the risk of major cardiac events like MI, uh, TIA, stroke, um, uh, a few other cardiac events, basically MACE, uh, major adverse cardiac events. Um, The incidence with allopurinol was 1.89. The incidence with febuxostat, 1.84 per 100 patient years. Not significantly different, the hazard ratios were the same, suggesting that at least in this Asian population, the drugs were not only equipotent, but equally safe. Now that's a big issue of discussion recently, because as you know, in January 2019, the FDA had a hearing on the safety of febuxostat and came away with some changes in the package labeling, suggesting that febuxostat may have several Uh, an edge in more cardiac um, risk than does allopurinol. So much so that they said, number one, any patients going on urate-lowering therapy should start on allopurinol first and then consider febuxostat if needed or if there is an allergy to allopurinol, then febuxostat could be considered. But that patients should know that there's possibly a higher risk with uh, febuxostat than with allopurinol. Turns out, again, if you look at a lot of these studies, it sometimes looks like it's a little more with febuxostat. Sometimes it's about the same with allopurinol. Sometimes allopurinol is even a little bit worse. You know, pound for pound, all, all studies, you know, there is a slight edge in more events with febuxostat. Again, I think these drugs work. I think all drugs work when you use them in gout and when you set expectations with patients on how they're, they're to be monitored. But gout patients are at high risk uh, for these cardiac events. One, because they have so much comorbidity. Um, two, because often they're not well controlled as far as this inflammatory disease. Another gout report comes on comes from China. Very interesting study of 130 patients with tophaceous gout, and about 33 of them developed ulcerations of their tophi. And this report was on what are the risk factors for developing an ulcerated tophus in someone with gout. After their analysis, turns out the factors that stood out were glucocorticoid overuse, um, how long you had the TOFI, and the number of TOFI. So it's not necessarily the size, or it's really the duration of the TOFUS, and how many TOFI were the factors that were most predictive of tophaceous ulceration. So a few interesting studies from um, fibromyalgia and fibromyalgia drugs. The first is in uh, juvenile fibromyalgia, where they studied uh, duloxetine versus placebo in 184 patients with juvenile fibromyalgia for 13 weeks. They escalated the dose from 30 to 60 milligrams a day, and guess what? Duloxetine did not meet its primary endpoint, which was the mean change in something called the brief pain inventory, the BPI, 
a pain measure that was used in, uh, in fibromyalgia. Um, when they looked at that, that as a discrete measure at any one time, it looked like fibro, uh, Cymbalta was better um, with uh, either 30% or 50% reductions in BPI compared to placebo, but at their primary endpoint, it failed. And that's what the drug is supposed to do. As you know, um, this is an approved therapy, uh, at least in adults, but not yet in children. Lyrica was also recently studied, not in fibromyalgia, but in um, treating generalized tonic-clonic seizures. As you know, Lyrica is, pregabalin, is approved by the FDA for use in fibromyalgia, neuropathy, and as adjunctive therapy in partial onset seizures. But in this particular study, a phase three trial, that was studied and, and found to not actually meet its primary endpoint in reducing the um, frequency of primary generalized tonic-clonic seizures. It's kind of disappointing because as you know, Lyrica is a descendant of uh, gabapentin, also an anti-seizure drug. Um, and it, you know, it should have worked here, but it didn't. Um, all this to say, duloxetine, Lyrica, I use them. I don't have a lot of success with them. To me, it's more of a marker of a patient who's gonna be hard to treat, who's not likely to respond to much. Um, they're gonna be a handful and, and they have difficult disease. I wish these agents were more potent. I wish we had better agents or better approaches to fibromyalgia. I don't think we do. Um, there should be a big call for more research in this area. More, another drug, another disease that merits a lot of research is certainly scleroderma. Uh, a study, a Japanese study of almost 200 patients correlated um, skin thickness scores, the modified Rodman skin score with, with uh, organ disease and found uh, with higher skin thickness scores, you had a significantly higher risk of interstitial lung disease, restrictive lung disease, and lower DLCOs or diffusion impairment uh, that was significant. Uh, I posted this one because I think there's, it's well known that advancing skin disease is associated with a greater risk of organ damage, not just lung, but also kidney and maybe heart. But in this study, they actually based a lot of their findings on the modified Rodden skin score. In a disease that doesn't have a lot going for it, at least it has this one very good measure um, that really has great predictive value and is a primary endpoint in almost all the studies. If you have a scleroderma patient, whether it's limited systemic sclerosis or diffuse systemic sclerosis, and they're not getting these done serially, you're making a big mistake. You do joint counts in RA, you follow CPK in myositis. This is the only thing you can hang your hat on in patients with systemic sclerosis, or it's one of the main things, and it's very reproducible. You, you are your own control. The skin is scored in, I think, 17 or 18 different areas. It's the face, chest, abdomen, and then bilaterally, the upper arm, the forearm, the back of the hand, and the fingers. And then in the lower extremities, it's the thigh, lower leg, and foot. That's bilaterally. The total score is 51 when you rate patients on a scale of zero to three, zero normal skin um, uh, 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 mobility, um, mild thickness, moderate thickness, and severe thickness. Severe thickness, you can't pinch up any skin on the back of the finger or the hand and whatnot. Uh, it's worth doing, it's worth recording and following serially in all your patients. So, an interesting study looked at leflunamide in patients with psoriatic disease. Actually, a meta-analysis of multiple studies looked at whether this is an, a useful therapy in either the skin disease or the joint disease. Turns out that it's really good at the joint disease, as you probably would guess, 
Um, they only looked at the mean SARC uh, outcome measures, not ACR20, where there was 77% success rate. The skin disease success rate, not so good, only using Posse 50 outcomes, not the usual, only 48% respond. Posse 75, only 25% respond. In this day and age, there are a lot better drugs to treat the skin. All this to say, I've actually used lefalutamide quite a bit in both psoriatic arthritis and even as adjunctive therapy in combination with other drugs to treat uh, aggressive skin disease with fairly good success, fairly good toler tolerance as far as how it goes. In all these studies, only about a 15% dropout rate. Think of leflunamide, although it's not an FDA-approved drug, um, it is a targeted therapy that probably merits consideration in psoriatic disease. Uh, a study from the UK looked at the uh, associations of central adiposity, or basically your waist circumference, in increasing the risk of disease. It was shown that it increases the risk of psoriasis and of rheumatoid arthritis, but not psoriatic arthritis, which is sort of surprising because obesity has been associated with the risk of both RA and PSA and psoriasis. And this particular study did not show, and this is a large UK study. Um, so uh, again, obesity is uh, a major risk factor for these diseases. The Osteoarthritis Initiative has been out there for a long time, has been studying osteoarthritis. In this particular study, 4796, almost 5,000 patients were treated for um, uh, um, their osteoarthritis. And they looked at the adjunctive use of metformin in obese patients with osteoarthritis and showed that actually the use of metformin was associated with a significantly reduced rate of medial cartilage loss in the knee. Um, and that's 0.71% uh, versus 1.5%. Basically a 50%, almost a 50% reduction and a trend in uh, fewer knee replacement surgeries um, over a six-year period. Now, this will only apply to obese patients with a BMI over 30, uh, so presumably they're getting their, their metformin for di diabetes or, uh, or the like, but here it shows that it has some protective offense, effects. Again, metformin shows up in a lot of different studies as being adjunctive therapy, helpful in a lot of autoimmune diseases. It may work through a lot of different mediators. In other diseases, we think it's IL-17 mediated. Here, it could be nitric oxide, it could be MMPs, uh, it could be cytokines, um, it could be activation of intracellular mediators that are uh, cell signaling mediators. Again, um, it's an interesting uh, adjunctive therapy in many of our patients. So uh, an interesting study looked at the uh, retention of biologic therapy in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. And following a low, oh, this is the German cohort, followed a large number of patients um, who were starting a new TNF, their first TNF inhibitor, and showed at one year, 74% were still on that TNF inhibitor. However, after five years, only uh, half the patients, 46%, were on a TNF inhibitor at that time. A number of them had switched to another um, biologic, and usually another TNF inhibitor, such that at five years, 63% were on some biologic, 46% were only on the first biologic. Over time, one-third of patients go off of therapy. Over time, of the ones who stay, stay on therapy, of the two-thirds, um, half of them stay on the same drug, and the others go on to a different drug. And the ones who stay on the same drug, actually, um, the ones who stay on the same drug, half of them take a reduced dose, and half of them take the same dose. So the idea is that the majority of patients with spondylitis will stay on a biologic therapy, but there is a significant one-third of patients who will go off of therapy 
who are these people, how they get on the therapy, were they reasonable starts to begin with? I find that interesting data. The Annals of Internal Medicine reported this week on the cost of physician burnout. This was um, a simulated modeling study, um, and, and they specifically looked at what would be the cost to society, to the United States, if you look at things like physicians who are going to retire or reduce the, or, uh, their hours of work. Um, it was estimated that the cost to the U.S. per annum is $4.6 billion. The cost to, to an organization like a hospital who employs a physician who may want to you know, bow out or reduce their hours is about $7,600 uh, per physician per year due to burnout. This is a substantial uh, financial hit to the healthcare system. Forget about what it does to the individuals, physicians who are becoming you know, uh, afflicted by this. I think this merits a serious nationwide consideration for how we can combat the problem of physician burnout. We know the EMRs are contributing to it. We know that the workflow is become a little bit ridiculous when you're doing prior authorizations for prednisone and methotrexate. Hello. Um, there's a lot of reasons why uh, physicians are burning out, and I think that this needs to be taken seriously by those who are planning healthcare for the future. Our last report uh, has to do with the risk of serious infection with rituximab, as you know, very commonly used uh, biologic. It has a risk of serious infection just like all the other biologics, which generally about two to five um, per 100 patient years. That's a serious infectious event. The risk in the package insert of rituximab is 4.3 per 100 patient years. In this particular study, a single center study, 700 patients were treated with rituximab and had their immunoglobulin levels followed. It's kind of interesting because I don't usually do that. Um, in their 700 patients, about 72% were taking rituximab for uh, their rheumatoid arthritis. The other 25% um, were taking for other rheumatic diseases, mostly lupus, uh, some myositis, and then some others. Um, the overall rate of SIEs in this cohort, single center cohort, was 9.8 per 100 patient years. That's about double the rate in the literature. So this is the real world where real things happen at a much higher rate. Uh, what they did show was that the risk factors for getting infections as you might expect, would be having had a prior serious infectious event like a pneumonia or septic arthritis, but also cancer, comorbidities, especially chronic lung disease. Obviously, higher corticosteroid doses would increase the risk. But the rituximab-related uh, risk factors are interesting. It's not B-cell numbers. B-cell depletion had no predictive value here in developing future serious infectious events. What did have value, and has been shown by others, including Ronald Van Vollenhoffen, is the IgG levels. Low IgG levels prior to starting rituximab or after restarting rituximab increases the risk of an SIE. And we're talking about the rates going up to 16.4 uh, per 100 patient years if it's before rituximab or um, 21.3 if it's after rituximab. Another important thing to follow are neutrophil counts. Uh, Rituximab-associated neutropenia was a risk factor. And lastly, the more you're on rituximab, the longer time of rituximab treatment, the greater the risk of developing a serious infection. So this says don't follow B-cell numbers. You should follow IgG prior to and during infusions of rituximab and follow neutrophil counts. That you do not want to become neutropenic. That would obviously be associated with a higher risk of infection, not surprisingly. But there is this phenomenon of um, rituximab-associated neutropenia 
uh, I have a slide on that somewhere. I want to say it's somewhere around six to nine percent of patients will develop that. But it's a, it's a low number, but it does happen. Um, they don't respond to GMCSF, you know, uh, uh, growth factor uh, therapy. Um, you basically have to um, uh, support them and, and watch them for the infection over time, and they can receive subsequent in, uh, infusions. That's it for this week at Room Now. Go to the website, check, uh, check out these citations to read more on these interesting reports. We'll talk to you next week. Follow us at, room, at, uh, at ULAR coming up in two weeks.